Welcome, and thank you for joining us for this On Aging Conversation. I'm Barbara McMillan, Provincial Community Engagement Coordinator for United Way British Columbia's Healthy Aging Team. I'd like to start by acknowledging and expressing appreciation for the opportunity to live, work, and gather on the traditional ancestral territories of all First Nations in this land we now call Canada. On Aging Conversations is a collaboration between Healthy Aging Corps and Help Age Canada. If you missed earlier episodes, you can find them on Apple Podcasts and on Healthy Aging Corps Canada, the national knowledge hub connecting agencies that support and advance independent living for older Canadians. And the lineup of on-aging speakers on CORE and links to the recordings, along with a lot of other interesting and useful information, can be delivered to your inbox if you're signed up for the twice-monthly CORE Canada e-news at www.healthyagingcore.ca. In our work with CORE, Help Age, and the extraordinary network of community-based senior-serving agencies, volunteers, and professionals across Canada, we're really privileged to encounter many thought leaders and innovators in the field of healthy aging. And so On Aging Conversations was launched to help bring some of these ideas and perspectives to a wider audience. And that's it, a 30-minute conversation with a featured guest providing healthy aging information, ideas, and inspiration every two weeks. And I'll now turn it over to Gregor Snedden, CEO of HelpAge Canada, your host for On Aging. Thanks, Barb, and great to be with you all again this week. HelpAge Canada supports community-based initiatives through our partnerships across Canada and around the world to improve the lives of older persons and their communities. Well, this week, I'm just thrilled to welcome Jennifer Malmez. Jennifer has spent the last 20 years as a caregiver and an advocate for quality end-of-life care in Canada. She's a mother of five, resides in the Kootenai area of BC, and she's the co-founder of the End of Life Doula Association of Canada, the creator and instructor of the End of Life Doula Program and Indigenous End of Life Guide Program at Douglas College. Without further ado, welcome to On Aging. Thank you so much for having me, Gregor. You have such an interesting roadmap, and you're truly a Canadian gal, coast to coast, and I would say, you know, quite grand, because you're from Grand Falls, Newfoundland, all the way to Grand Forks, BC. <laughs> Why don't you tell us a little bit about your journey? I understand you started off in nursing school, but tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be where you are now. Yeah, I always wanted to be a nurse. Thank you for that introduction. And yes, uh, I started off in nursing school from from a young age. That's always what I wanted to do. My family didn't shy me away from spending time with relatives that were ill or that needed care. So I was always immersed in that. And in my first year of nursing school, on my first practicum, actually, I had a lady who died in my arms. And that was the most profound moment in my entire career and one of the most profound moments in my life. I had been working, had started my practicum at a long-term care facility, like most nurses do. They start off there with their practicums. And uh, this lady, I can remember her face, and she had this lovely, long, silver hair. And she just looked up at me and she said, can you brush my hair? And I thought, wow, okay, sure. And I brushed her hair and she looked at me and she said, thank you, and took maybe another breath. And then she died. I was like, what the heck is this? What's happening here? So for me, being a 20-something-year-old feisty Newfoundland girl, that situation made me angry. 
it wasn't until later in life that I saw the beauty in that death and just the sacredness of it and the fact that she had chosen that moment with me there in that room. But that was really where my vision for my life had changed. So I actually dropped out of nursing school not because of that moment, but because I wanted to pursue a career with working with older people in death and dying and in healthy aging. So I moved from Newfoundland to BC to pursue a gerontology degree from Simon Fraser University. And uh, once I finished that, I really relied back on some of my nursing stuff, did home care for about 15 years. And then a colleague of mine said, hey, did you ever hear of a, an end-of-life doula or a death doula? I read up on it and I was like, that's what I do. And that was probably like 2010. And since then, I've been working as an end-of-life doula. And in 2015, Douglas College approached me and asked if I would uh, partner with them and write an end-of-life doula program. Here I am today, still teaching and the author of both the end-of-life doula program and the Indigenous end-of-life guide program at Douglas College. That's amazing. You know, I think that contemporary society, I think we have such a hard time with even approaching or discussing death and dying. It's so washed, even a oftentimes, you know, like a funeral home, it's with the kind of the elevator music and all the light topes and colors and everything comfortable, but it's washing over everything. And people are finding such a hard time even approaching a discussion around it. Oh boy, it's one of the most beautiful parts of life, a tragic part, but also a beautiful part. And I love how you talk about in some of the, some of your writing that I've read online is having a good life and a good death. What is an end of life doula? Like, you know, what is this sacred offering? Tell us a little bit about what it is. Yeah, for sure. We're still relatively a new role. And in other countries, they have different names. Like in the UK, they call them companions. And in Australia, they use the language death doula. Here in Canada, we tend to use the word end of life doula. And they really, the whole movement was a response to basically the lack of comfort and care that people at the end of their lives were getting not only here in Canada, but definitely here, we all we know our health system is taxed. Mm. We also know, and some people don't realize that death is not a medical event. If you can have a baby in a swimming pool in your living room, you can have a good quality death in your bedroom, in your own home, with your own cup of tea, with your own family, with your own smells and sights and sounds. And there's nothing really stopping us from that except for fear sometimes of not knowing what to do or not thinking you have the skills to do it. Sometimes it might be the fear of pain. People think that death is painful. And for those who've sat with people who are dying, in most cases, death is the most peaceful moments that you'll ever witness. There's something definitely sacred in the air when people are dying. So an end-of-life doula is someone who empowers and educates people that they do have choices. They have choices in what kind of care they want or they don't want. They have choices in how they want their body taken care of after they die. 
they have choices and opportunities to have these conversations with their loved ones before they miss out and before they cannot communicate anymore. So that's one part. Some people think that end-of-life doulas are there sitting at the bedside vigiling with and and that is definitely one part that some doulas play, but a lot of it is around proactive planning and really just sitting down with people and their families and finding out what brings them joy. What are their values? What are their preferences? Mm. Some people don't know what they want, but but I can tell you right now, they know what they don't want. (laughs) Kind of like a birth doula supports a woman during the labor process. An end-of-life doula supports the person on their end-of-life journey. I had doulas with a couple of my children and you meet, make sure you're a good fit. And then you sit and you say, well, I don't want an epidural. I don't want this. I don't want that. Mm -hmm. And you decide, you know, what music you want? What do you want your comfort bag? And it's really the same thing. Sometimes the birth doula shows up for the birth and sometimes they miss it. Same thing with us. Sometimes we're just there to prepare and the family feels good about doing the support on their own. I really like that. I really like working myself out of a job and having the Mm. family feel so comfortable that they don't even need to call me. Wow. Yeah, that's rich. You know, in some ways, they're really the, the, the appropriate and rightful people. Maybe not in every case. Yeah. Wow. That really makes sense. Some people may assume, because it's been such a lightning rod discussion for us these last few years, is medically assisted dying. And and maybe people may connect end-of-life doula with medically assisted dying. Can you clarify if there is a relationship there or the distinction from made? That's a really good question. And it's probably one of the biggest misconceptions that we have. The first being that we're replacing hospice volunteers, which is not our role. We're starting way out here, creating that continuity of care and and actually advocating for people to go to hospice. But our second probably biggest misconception is that we are related or supporters of medical assistance in dying. It is the doula's choice whether they are willing to work with people if they choose to have medical assistance in dying, but we are not affiliated with that. A couple of years ago, when medical assistance in dying first came out in June of 2016, McLean's Magazine interviewed me and they said, has your business increased since MAID has become legal here in Canada? And I said, absolutely it has, but not because we're supporting more people who are choosing MAID, it was the fact that MAID provided an opportunity for people to have conversations about what they would and wouldn't want. So people started to think about planning and and getting things documented. So for us, doulas aren't, we're not in affiliation with Dying with Dignity. Some doulas are. My rule of thumb is if a client comes to me and what they're asking or what they're asking of another doula infringes on your own personal beliefs, there's enough of us out there to support them. So if I have a client who wants me to sit with them and hold their hand during the maid process, I get to make that choice of whether I'm going to do that or not. And there are other people in those roles that can do that if that's not my belief. And okay. really just setting good boundaries around what you will and won't do. You don't have an official position on the matter. It's up to each individual. And certainly an end-of-life doula is not related, connected in any official capacity or any way. But for some end-of-life doulas, that may be some support that they may give. For other end-of-life doulas, they may choose to pass that on to a colleague because that would be outside of their belief. 
Okay, great clarification. As you were talking a little bit earlier about what it is that you do, it really made me think that, wow, one of the key skills, and it truly is a skill, is learning to be an effective listener, growing those ears and really doing a lot of deep listening to people as you go through this process, which I know from my own background is an ongoing skill we, we have to develop and nurture and continue to work with and sharpen. In your program, the End of Life Duva program and the Indigenous program at Douglas College, it must be really one of a kind and it sounds so rich. Could you tell us a little bit about what does a curriculum look like? What kind of things do you study? What are the tools and skills that you need to be a certified End of Life doula? So doulas are unregulated here in Canada, so there's no certification, but Douglas College strives to provide that quality standardized education for end of life doulas. The one thing that I would want to say about this is that some of the skills that are required to be an end of life doula aren't something that can be learned in a classroom. Mm. Um, Some things are just things that you're gifted with. And you're right, uh, Gregor, listening is huge. I mean, we go back to Sigmund Freud and he says, everybody wants to be heard, validated and listened to. And he's absolutely right. He nailed it on the head. But some other things that you need to be able to do is have a self-awareness, almost like an emotional intelligence about what is yours because of your experience that you're bringing into the room and what their needs are and what's their experience, because you do have to have a separation in the two. I can't support you, Gregor, if I think that you need this and this and this to die well. Well, you might need C, D, and E, while I need A, B, and C, right? And we have to be able to differentiate what's ours and what's theirs. And really, you need to have that humility to be able to take on their beliefs without putting your own two cents in. Without judging and so on, and even walking with them, even if they may not be the choices that you would make. Absolutely. Yeah. I like to call it like we're almost like a tour guide, like we're almost like the person on the other end of Expedia or whoever you use. And we're setting, we're asking them, well, do you want sun? Do you want snow? Do you want hot, dry, cold? And and they're picking. And we can't say, well, I was just in the Bahamas last week and it was fantastic or don't go to Mexico. Really, we need to be non-biased and let them choose based on their own preferences and their own experience that they're bringing with them and really just follow along. And then when they get on that plane to go, we're just waving goodbye because we can't go with them. Everyone dies alone. You might not be physically alone, but you're the only one going. So we want to get them to a place that's their Hawaii. That's their whatever it is for them. In some ways, it reminds me in some ways, a bit, little bit like chaplaincy work, CAPE programs I don't know if you're familiar with, or it sounds like a lot of interior work first for a doula. They need to really get comfortable within their own selves, their own silence, and develop that self-awareness so that they're able to be not necessarily empty, but able to be fully that's, present to that other person. That's the perfect word is empty of themselves. Empty of themselves. Mm. You're absolutely right. right. It, you know, we've had a few ministers, a few United ministers actually come through our program, and some of that is very similar. What is it that a person needs to help another person die with dignity, to die a good death? How do we walk and support a person who is dying? And maybe the reverse, what is not helpful? 
We've been socialized. I think you touched on it in the beginning to hide death away and not talk about it because we don't want to evoke an emotion in somebody and we don't want to invoke emotion in ourselves. When somebody has died and, you know, they're your neighbor and then you see them walking through the grocery store, do you go over to them and say, hey, how are you doing? Or do you steer your cart down another aisle so you don't have to have that confrontation? So really, uh, we need to be comfortable with death. Like we need to increase our own death literacy, figure out why we think the way that we do. And it's based on usually your own personal experience. The people, the students that come through the program are usually people who've either had a good experience with death and they want to share that and do that for someone else, or they've had a horrible experience and they want to do better next time. So some of the things that you would do is, like you said, it's listening. It's not telling people what they should or shouldn't do. It's sitting and being with the person, not telling them what you would do or what others would do or what you think is right or wrong. We don't shame people. We don't tell Mm -hmm. people to hurry up and get over it. Grief comes before a person dies and it comes with in the person who is dying and we try to normalize that for them and let them know that that's okay whatever they're experiencing right now there's an assumption maybe that they only work with older people and you know that idea that very older person that's looking back over a life well lived and this moment but i don't think that's really necessarily the case or true all the time can you comment on that a little bit about you know what it's like or what's different about this journey with say a younger person or someone in midlife or uh, versus an older person I can speak to my own assumptions in that because I did drop out of nursing school to do a gerontology degree because I wanted to work with people who were dying. It's a big assumption on my part. Uh, Yeah. And, you know, and and partly I'm right because older people have a higher rate of death. People over the 65 or 80, you know, they're more likely to die than a 20 year old. But another thing, like a misconception, I would say, is that most of my clients are actually under 60. Oh, interesting. So I don't know if that's a generational thing, but in the last five, six years, I've had clients that were in their 50s. I've had a 32 year old man. I've had a younger female, a couple of ladies in their 30s. Death is not reserved for the old or the aged. It happens to everyone. It's not associated with age. But here's a thing that I like to remind people, and especially the people that I'm working with, full life is not equivalent to the longest life. You can have a full life at 15. You can have a full life at 20. It's what you're doing with your life and how you're feeling in your life. And I think that we as a society have different values on, you know, a 90-year-old dying versus a 20-year-old dying. We say, oh, well, at least, you know, they got to have a good life. Well, well, a 20-year-old could have had that exact experience as well. But we mourn for the life they could have missed out on. Another thing that goes with that is that death isn't always medical. We have all these people dying and prolonging their death, being hooked by machines and yeah. in hospitals where people want to die at home. People want to die at oh, home. Oh, yeah, that's right. And death doesn't have to be medical. You know, I really, uh, really appreciate appreciate this discussion and I really sense and feel it from you. From my own background as a clergy person, I had the great 
tremendous privilege of, of journeying with countless people as they passed on their way and walked through death with their families and people. I always thought that during that time of my life, it was the greatest privilege, the most yeah. profound experience to do that. And I really sense from the way that you speak that you're coming from a similar place. And what can we do now in our lives, regardless of our age, uh, to prepare for a good death? I think the first thing that you can do is be open to having conversations with your loved ones and your family, because that's got to be one of the toughest things when you're working with a family is that the person who's dying assumes that everybody else knows what they're thinking. Everybody else knows what mm. their wishes are and what that causes people in the hallways of a hospital arguing, trying to make these decisions with nothing to go on. So start talking about it, whether you use a game like the death deck or you know, the conversation game, or you do death over dinner, or you just say, mm. hey, what do you want? Start having those conversations and start documenting some of these things. In Canada, we have some tremendous resources. We have advancedcareplanning.ca through the Canadian Hospice and Palliative Care Association. Or, and we have things like PlanWell, planwellguide.ca, and that's a serious illness plan generator. And that's for somebody who might not be comfortable with thinking about death. Yeah. Well, are you comfortable with thinking about serious illness? I think COVID has really woken us up to death happens to everyone. It can happen to everyone. We need to have a plan because I don't think it's not optional. Of, it, no one's getting out of here alive. That's right. But it's not we can an option. Definitely so. decide yeah. to have some influence on how we're going and who we want around and what that's going to look like. Jennifer, I wanted to just pass it over to Barb to see uh, Barb, but do you have any thoughts or questions for Jennifer? Yeah, I do. I mean, you've stirred up so many things just thinking about some of my own personal experiences around family members and friends who have passed and their wishes or, or not knowing their wishes. But one of the books that I found incredibly helpful on this subject was Being Mortal by Phil yeah. Gawande. I, I just found it incredibly profound. And you talked about a good life and a good death. And, and he certainly talks about quality of life and quality quality of death and that how modern healthcare has really medicalized death, just as what you had described. And, but he also talks about alternate options and that there, there needs to be, the medical profession needs to be more aware and provide more instead of pushing for every possible treatment, whether or not it's likely to extend life or particularly quality of life. So I'm just wondering if you're seeing any changes in the medical profession around this and, and looking more at good death as opposed opposed to a longer life at whatever cost. Yeah, I think there's a significant shift in how we view death and how I think we're shifting away from the medicalization of death to more of a holistic, holistic, a family approach, a personal approach to death, recognizing that death is not all about the physical body, but there's also the social aspects, the emotional aspects, the psychosocial aspects, thinking about that quality. Is it quality for you to be hooked up to machines in like a small dark room in a hospital? Is that what you would want? Is that quality? Do you, do you need that psychosocial part? What are you doing for your emotional piece? Because you can be in that dark room in a hospital. As long as you have that social support and you have things happening, you have that spiritual support. I think that that is a big shift is that it's more holistic. I think that the medical system is adopting a, the palliative approach to care and not just for death and dying. I think that the palliative approach to care can be applied anywhere. And that's really like early interventions, pro being proactive rather than reactive. 
utilizing all the community resources, seeing a person as a whole, and including their family in those things. So yeah, there has definitely been a shift. I love Atul Gwande's book, Being Mortal. He does have some really good YouTube videos as well, documentaries that he's done. If anybody's not a reader and they want to know more about it, there's some great books out there. I often reflect on the idea that in many ways, who we are or what we are is our relationships, especially those key relationships, family, a spouse, and so on. And often I would find that when somebody lost a spouse or a partner, an older person, for example, there was the mourning of the loss, but there was also the deeper work or the deeper pain in a way was kind of rediscovering who you are now with that mirror now gone. And, And I think that as you're speaking, it's reminding me also that death is also an incredibly important relational event where someone to have those relationships around one not to be in an isolated room with wires stuck into you but to be around those big relationships is the very best that we would want for one another and our and each other and ourselves and those we love and care for that's the highest point of our being is that moment maybe as we come into the world as we leave this world and to be around and with those relationships that help us understand who we are and where we're coming from and where we're going. Connection in this world is everything. And there's consequences when those connections are broken. One thing as a doula, because we do support the entire family, is we talk to the people who are going to be left behind about how they're going to fill those holes in their Mm. day. It might not even be a family member. Maybe you walk down to Tim Hortons every day, Gregor, and there's Mm -hmm. the same guy that you say hi to every morning at 1030 And now he's not there. Those are those other griefs that are like not even recognized. So it doesn't have to be a family member or a loved one. And we can't, we're not going to get into families today because it takes some time because not every family member is a loved one. (laughs) But yeah, everything in this world is connected. And that is our greatest thing that we can offer as doulas, as humans, as all of us is to foster those connections, especially at the end of life. Well, Jennifer, this has just been a remarkable conversation and we just so appreciate you taking your time to be with us today. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. If you'd like to know more about Doolering or the program or connect with me, you can reach me at malmes, M-A-L-L-M-E-S-J at douglascollege.ca. Super. Thank you so much, Jennifer. That was so informative and interesting and inspiring. And thank you, Gregor. And thanks to our audience. We will see you next time on Aging Canadian Conversations.